following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. Hello everyone, this is Pastor Alan Gilman from All Saints Lutheran Church with the message for November the 29th, 2020. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark entitled The Remarkable Gospel. And in fact, this is the planned second to last sermon in the series. Uh, this week, we're looking at the latter part of chapter 15. I'm going to be reading Mark 15 verses 21 through 47. I often read a little more than the passage we're focusing on, but I'm only going to be reading the the actual passage that we are looking at. I've entitled this sermon, The Shame of the Cross. While for the early hearers or readers of this gospel, the sheer mention of crucifixion would conjure vivid, graphic images of this horrible execution method. While that would be so vivid to them, uh, Mark appears to be emphasizing the, the verbal abuse Jesus endured, and I'll explain later on why that's very important and relevant to us today. So let's read the passage, Mark 15, verses 21 through 47. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of, the, of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died. He should have already died. 
and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Our Father, these are difficult words. These difficult words of a terrible event that you have used to be our remedy for life. Help us, Lord, to hear afresh. For for many of us, we've heard this passage and others like it so many times. Would you speak to us afresh and help us to connect with what you want us to hear and know and do as a result of what you're saying in this passage today? Please help me and help us all in this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start at the beginning, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, the way this man Simon is referred to uh, as being the father of Alexander and Rufus gives the impression that perhaps the hearers or readers of this gospel would know exactly who Mark, of course, of originally Peter, was referring to. Uh, there's a good chance that whether, it's, since he was a passerby, he may not have been a, a believer yet, a follower of Jesus, but eventually did become one. Uh, one of the things that this tells us is normally after being scourged, which would have killed some people, uh, crucifixion victims uh, carried their own crossbeam to the place of crucifixion. But while the scourging did not kill Jesus, he was too weak to carry it himself, and so they forced this man Simon to do it instead. And there might be a picture here, this idea of carrying our cross. Now note again, he, he wouldn't have been carrying the whole cross structure, but the very large and heavy cross beam, very, uh, still very difficult to do. And this man was forced to carry the cross for Jesus. Remember, Jesus said that if we want to follow him, we need to carry our cross. That is, we need to carry our own crossbeam to our place of crucifixion, being willing to die on behalf of what God is, um, willing to die for what God is calling us to do, just like Jesus did. And so here this man is forced to doing it. I find it kind of interesting that some people think that, um, that it could be so difficult and, and painful sometimes to, to follow the Lord and truly stand up for him when actually everybody in the world is, is forced to face difficulty. And so either we're going to face difficulty with the Lord or do it without the Lord. I suggest doing it with the Lord. Verse 22, And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And we see here, this is a real place, something happening in real time. This is not just a story. This is a real historical event. And it's because it really happened in history, it it makes a an impact upon the world and upon especially upon those who get what God is doing through this event. Verse 23, and they offered him, we don't know exactly who they offered him and offered Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. 
There's a lot of discussion as to exactly what this was. Some people think that this was a mild anesthetic that was offered to Jesus, but he refused it because he needed to be as clear-headed as possible going through this experience. Uh, on the other hand, it might have been uh, a sign of mockery, which is a theme working through this gospel. And it's it's the theme of mockery is here, whether or not it's, invo- it, it's included in this offer of this drink or not. And then we read the first part of verse 24, and they crucified him. Now to us, that's a very short statement. And of course, if you didn't know what crucifixion was, it would hardly mean anything. But for the people of that day, they understood it was just a, a simple statement that would conjure a horrific, horrific image. And this was done publicly, so people knew exactly what this was. Uh, and um, so I'm going to briefly go over, in case we need to understand a little bit of what crucifixion meant in that day and what it meant for Jesus to go through this. Um, and there's a, what's going on here is there's so much uh, echo of Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, verse 16, we read, And they pierced my hands and my feet. And Psalm 22 is an agonizing Psalm of David that foreshadows this event. And so as I mentioned, and as we read last time, last week, he had been scourged, which was a horrible, horrible um, punishment where your skin would be ripped and many people didn't survive it. So he had already gone through this. Then he would be laid on the ground on the crossbeam. His hands would be fastened at a stake. We talk about nails, but these would be large stakes, uh, probably metal stakes rammed into his wrists. Uh, and the wrists would be seen as, as, as part of the hand because his hands were to be pierced, uh, but the wrist was part of the hand. It, it wouldn't work to, to um, fasten him to the wood through the palm of his hand as is often imaged. Then they would secure his, his um, so the, sorry, the cross beam would be attached to the upright beam and then he would be uh, held up there's the way it's described here. It sounds like he was probably pretty high for everyone to see. Sometimes crosses would be where the victim would be eye level to passersby. In this case, it seemed he was a little higher, um, and so that would be quite an, a, an excruciating event to be to be made upright like that. And then his legs would be put in a very very awkward position as they would cross his his feet and ram another stake through both feet to the cross. This whole experience would be excruciating, as I've already mentioned. And it's interesting that the English word excruciating is from the Latin meaning out of the cross. So we end up with a word coming into English that actually has its roots in the in crucifixion as, as the pain that would be experienced through this is incomparable. And so this being up on the cross and fastened to it by his wrists and by his feet in this very awkward position would actually make it very difficult to breathe as his rib cage would be pressing down against his lungs as he'd be contorted on the cross. And so he would um, be able to inhale with much difficulty, and, but it would be almost impossible to exhale, according to what I've read. 
And so he would have to push himself up with his legs and feet in order to breathe out and in order to speak at all, which he, we have a, about seven statements of him recorded in the Gospels. They're not all here in the Gospel of Mark, uh, but he did speak, which requires exhaling as, as well as the regular breathing. And, and this was designed on purpose like this uh, to force the the victim to inflict himself with torturous, excruciating pain just in order to, to breathe. And as time went on, due to the, the lack of oxygen and the combination of blood loss and being in a fixed body position, the, the victim would experience severe I was going to say again, excruciating cramps and spasms. The death would come very slowly to the victim. Uh, and from what I understand, they didn't always ram stakes in. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they just, uh, they sometimes left uh, the body just tied with, with ropes. But either way, not, it would take hours or days for the victim to finally die. And that's why, as we're going to see later on, Pilate was surprised that he died within a relatively short period of time, just several hours. Let's continue now in verse 24. So it says, And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And this this is a fulfillment of what David uh, wrote in Psalm 22, verse 18. And there's no time to go into all the Old Testament connections the foreshadows the predictions uh, the um and the and the allusions back to the old testament there's so much that the old testament uh uh foreshadows in this event and this is why paul could write later on that he died according to the scriptures and when we read in verse 25 and it was the third hour when they crucified him there's precise timing on the part of Mark. Mark gives more time references than in the other Gospels. Again, so there's this, there's this sense of, of real time, real place, real people. Verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. We know from elsewhere and also from history that the charge would either be uh, nailed over the head of the victim on the cross or it would be around his, his neck, uh, on his on his chest. And this is to tell everybody what this criminal had done. And in his case, the, the charge against him was the king of the Jews. And so actually it was designed as a, in such a way as a, as a sign of mockery. It was mocking Jesus. Oh, you upstart king. Uh, this is what, this is what we do to, to people like you. It was mocking the Jewish people. Uh, remember, this is the religious leaders were the ones that that wanted him dead, and they they said that when he brought when they brought him to Pilate, that the charge they were bringing, which was not a concern of theirs, was that he was claiming to be a king, which that was a reason for Rome to execute him. Now Pilate didn't really believe that he had done this, and so partly to appease them, partly to make fun of them, the charge was that he was the king of the Jews, which he actually really was. And as being the king of the Jews, he actually was was and is king of the whole world. But it's being presented in this very mocking fashion. 
It, it's mocking God in that God chose the Jewish people, that he would make himself known to the world, and that is being done in its greatest sense through the the king, the, their, their chosen king of the Jews. I'm reading in my own uh, time with the Lord. I'm in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David's promised that someone would come who would be uh, this great king whose kingdom would endure forever. And he, this is it. And it, it's a, such an ironic uh, uh, picture because this is, in a sense, his enthronement ceremony because he is doing the greatest thing anyone in the world has ever done, dying on behalf of the sins of mankind, accomplishing the will of God, and, and doing that which is necessary that we could be rescued from sin and its effects, and that if we put our trust in him, we will, the Bible says, reign forever with him. This is the, the, the greatest event, and yet it's being presented and engaged with at the time as this, this horrible um, mocking of this, this, this upstart victim. It's, it's, it's horrible. But actually, there is this great act of God happening through Jesus while people are kind of just are laughing and they're making fun, which is what people do. We'll see that more as we go along. Verse 27, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. So he was crucified with, with two others, and they were either thieves or they might have been political uh, uh, criminals as well, as he, just like Jesus was being accused of. Um, but there's a picture here, and it seems to harken back to Mark 13, not sorry, Mark 10, verses 35 through 45, when James and John had requested to sit at his left and his right in his kingdom. And so the way the words are being said here, one on his right and one on his left, it's like, you want to follow Jesus? This is the cost. This is what it means to follow him. Now, now don't get me wrong. The the suffering that we often have to endure as followers of him it's, is not the whole story, just like it wasn't the whole story for Jesus. But it is necessary, if we're going to be true followers of him, we have to be willing to follow him no matter what the cost. And this is something the disciples did not understand. They just couldn't get it. They wouldn't understand this until after he rises from the dead. Verse 29, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the, from the cross. So remember, this is a public place and there'd be people passing by there seeing this. And some of these people wouldn't even, you know, wouldn't even know what's going on, but people are just making fun of him. And that's what we do. We people, we kick people when we're down, when they're down. Instead of inquiring as to what's going on and, and really understanding a situation, it's just so easy to go along with the crowd. And let's be careful. We're not immune from that. Especially today with, with the access to information that we have and so many people's opinions and how things are passed on by social media. But it's it's been around for such a long time. It's one of the reasons why gossip is so destructive because we're being filled with inaccurate information. When people gossip, we create pictures of other people, and those pictures can be very vivid, just like this picture is very vivid, and, 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 
and we're getting their take on a situation. And could you imagine if, as you come to an execution scene, and and here it is again, where people have been and been up to no good, and look what they're doing. And and even for t- today, for a lot of Jewish people, the fact that Jesus hung from a cross was a sign that he was cursed by God, because the Bible said, "Cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree." And so just like Job's friends who looked at Job and saw, oh, look, he's suffering. Therefore, we, we, we know the scriptures enough, wherever they were at in the, in the timeline of, of the Bible. They knew enough about God that if somebody was suffering like Job, he must have been up to no good. To the point that eventually they say that, you, you know, you're not even suffering enough for all the bad that, that bad that you've done. They didn't know of any bad thing that he done, but they assumed by what they were seeing that he must have been a horrible, horrible man. And that's what many have done with Jesus. Look what he's going through. And if ever you've been through a hard time that's been no fault of your own, you know what it's like to be criticized by other people as they look at you funny. I've, kn- I've known people like this. Kn- There's a family we knew once that went through a, 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 st- a string of horrible circumstances. I won't go into all the details. And and believers, people who love the Lord, people who should have been encouraging, encouraging to them, actually were deducing that they had done wrong, and that's why they were suffering. And that's what these people were doing to Jesus that day. And there's, um, there, this is a reflection of Psalm 22, verse 7, Psalm 109, verse 25, Jeremiah 18, verse 16, and and so on. And be careful, just because this these events fulfill Scripture. It doesn't mean that the, the people involved get off the hook that easy. They, uh, it's not as if they were puppets being forced to do this. This is normal human behavior. And Jesus came to save us from normal human behavior. Verse 31, And so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, that's the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. They they didn't believe that he was this, but it's like, if you're really this person, you should do this. And they didn't see that if he would get off the cross to save himself, then he wouldn't be saving them. By saving himself, he wouldn't be saving them. He needed to allow himself to go through this excruciating pain and death in order to save us. And very often, we're called to, to face very difficult situations for the benefit of others. Continuing, continuing in verse 32, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You probably know that in the Gospel of Luke, uh, one of the of these thieves, uh, criminals, uh, actually repented and turned to him. There's a whole interaction between them. But Mark is focusing on this. It's, it seems very likely that they started off uh, by re- reviling him. And then eventually, one of them had a, chain, a change of heart as he saw how the, as the hours went by and what Jesus was really like. And maybe as he started to see what was going on in terms of how people were, were other people were d- deriding him. But for some time, the robbers too were treating him. So everybody joined the chorus of deriding Jesus. Verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And so we know you know, darkness in the Old Testament is a sign of God's judgment. It's also reminiscent of the ninth plague uh, when, the, when God was uh, striking Egypt in order that Pharaoh would let the people go and 
the ninth plague, darkness came over the whole land. People, you're supposed to notice when things like this are happening. You're supposed to notice. Not every strange occurrence is a sign from God. But here, with all the things that people had heard, they're supposed to understand that something is going on here than simply a mere man, an, an, another Jewish man, dying on a cross by the Romans. There's something going on. But what is it? Verse 34, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. Like, where do they, how do they get, a, he's calling Elijah from him saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, it's difficult to know how come they didn't hear properly, but it is, it's actually quite interesting what's going on here. Uh, the quote that Mark provides, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, is actually the Aramaic an Aramaic translation of the original Hebrew of the first verse of Psalm 22. Aramaic was the common language spoken by Jewish people in the land of Israel in in the first century. And so for Jesus to quote Psalm 22 this way, it's not that he's quoting an important Bible verse. It's that these are his words coming from his heart at this time. It is Psalm 22, which is a it's, it's something that's reflected all the way through this experience, but it's it's very, very personal to him. And so one of the reasons why they may not have heard him properly is because he was speaking in Aramaic. They understood Aramaic, but it, it wasn't the normal way to quote the, the verse. Also, there might have been a lot of commotion. They may not have been that close. They may not have known exactly what he said. Also, they are not really paying attention to what's going on. I think that's something that I've said way earlier on, going through the Gospel of Mark. Here's Jesus quoting Psalm 22, this magnificent, uh, tragic, yet hopeful psalm that he is acting out before them, and yet it just goes over their heads. And instead, they... Um, they connect uh, what he's saying with a mythological understanding that the Jewish people have had all through the centuries about Elijah. His name in Hebrew is Eliyahu, that there's the Eli. So the so Eli in Hebrew is my God. It's pronounced Eloi in Aramaic. Eli would also be a short way of saying Eliyahu, Elijah's name. But Elijah was seen as this kind of a mythic folk hero. We remember he uh, was uh, taken into heaven by a by a whirlwind, and he never actually died. He went directly into the presence of God, and so there grew a tradition that Elijah comes and helps people in need, um, and that's still true among some Jewish people today. That understanding of of Elijah's special role in the lives of the Jewish people. And so they thought maybe he was looking to Elijah to help him. Verse 36, And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down, come to take him down. And so maybe uh, through giving them, this was an actual cheap sort of wine that people did drink in those days. And it sounds like somebody was taking some compassion on him in the midst of his suffering, maybe trying to prolong his life. Not too sure. It is reminiscent of Psalm 69, verse 21. And then we read in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And so 
it, was, it seems this is telling us he died when it was time to die. And while he was going through this horrific suffering, when he was done, when, when it was done, when he'd done everything he needed to do in terms of his suffering on that cross at this time and in this place, he gave up his spirit to God. That's what it sounds like. And then we're told something that they wouldn't have known. The people there at the scene wouldn't have known. There's verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, clearly, as Peter and then Mark writing this down, seeking to tell us, there he's dying horribly on the cross. He's being mocked. But then these other things are going on. Darkness comes upon the land for out, for a few hours, for three hours and also when he dies, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Now, there were there was this curtain that was separating um, the priests from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And at this very time, that curtain ripped in two. Now, of course, they wouldn't have known that. Somebody must have been there that eventually relayed this information and then they understood the significance. And I'm not too sure if the significance is now the way into God's presence is fully open to those who trust in him, or if God is now going out into all the world and is no longer metaphorically confined uh, among the people of Israel. It could be both. Verse 39 And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Note, who gets the message? There's all this mockery going on, but who gets the message? A Roman soldier, the centurion, probably the one whose job was to supervise this execution. He saw something in the way Jesus died that seems nobody else saw, and he knew that this was more than just a man, that in fact, this was the Son of God. Now, in case you're thinking that it's only for this kind of outsiders, like here's the Jewish leaders, the, the Jewish people are, are there, and they're making fun of him, and um, this Roman soldier is the one that kind of gets what's going on, there's more. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. It's an interesting place to, to put this whole little section about the women who supported him all the way before when he, during his time of ministering in the north in the Galilee. But it's 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 filling us in that even though there all these disciples had scattered, there were these few women that they saw something in him. They remained faithful to him. They were on the scene and they were supporting him all, all the way. And there's there's all this talk in our day about the role of women and and what um, and what this means for us, what this meant for then. But what it meant for then is while women didn't have that prominent place in society, they fulfilled. Uh, a role in the plan of God by serving the Messiah that that was that was huge. And I, I think what a lot of people want to see is like everybody wants to be in the forefront. Everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants power. But the word of God is telling us you can serve. You don't have to give in. 
to all the commotion and all the opinion, all the gossip. You can be behind the scenes, not just women. Men, women, boys, girls could be involved and make a huge difference in the world by doing what appears to be small things. And only looking back do we see how big those small things really are. Verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. But I, I thought these council guys were all the bad guys. Like, what's with this Joseph of Arimathea? Well, it's cha- this is challenging some of the ways we look at things. Yes, the ruling council condemned Jesus to death and cut a deal with Pilate that he'd be crucified. Terrible. Very typical for a, 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 a political body to do. They don't like being threatened. They don't want to lose their place and position. And they'll do whatever it takes, even if it means killing people to keep their place. But then there's the exceptions the odd person in the midst of those those power groups that know what's right and true. And then some of those are willing to act just like Joseph, who have the courage to stand for what is good and what is right and be willing to risk his life by going to the Roman governor so that Jesus could be given an honorable burial. The normal thing would either to be take them down and throw the victims, the dead victims, into a, a, a common grave or leave them on the cross for birds to come and eat their flesh. That's not what happened in the case of Jesus because of courageous Joseph here. Verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And I mentioned earlier that often crucifixion t- took a lot longer. We get some more details in the other gospel as to how they all died in time uh, before the the Sabbath um, started. Um, But Jesus died on his own, so to speak, uh, because there was something else going on with him. But it's also important to have these details here that to know that he really died. He didn't just faint on the cross or appear to be dead and then come back to life some days later. Um, which is is so ridiculous anyway, but still, in, in, in case people are, are concerned, but it, it, it's interesting that um, if there would have been any kind of thought that he wasn't really dead, it's interesting that they would include the fact that Pilate was surprised um, because it was unusual for somebody to die so quickly on the cross, but he was really dead. Second part of verse 44 and continuing from there and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And uh, this is a reference to to the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 that he was with a rich man in his death Joseph had a was was wealthy and he had a very elaborate tomb that was cut out of a, a rock that had various chambers where dead bodies would be laid and these are still further details to establish that Jesus was really dead just a few thoughts before we close Who is really being shamed in this story? 
The story tells us about how the crowds and the religious leaders were, and even Pilate, by putting the, the charge as king of the Jews, how everyone was mocking Jesus and putting him to shame. But what's really going on in the story is because this is actually the Son of God dying on behalf of the sins of the world, the Son of God who will reign forever. The irony of this exposes the world's shame. When you know what's going on, who is being shame, who's who's shameful here? It's not Jesus dying like a common criminal. It's the people who misunderstand who he really is. And so it begs the question, what is our response? Both in terms of how we're going to relate to Jesus but also will we allow ourselves to enter into his shame or will we be swept away by public opinion and pressure? You know, there's only few people in history, relatively, who have died a torturous death because of their faith in Jesus. But almost every single true believer knows or should know what it means to be mocked, to be looked at funny. And and some of us, that's we can't handle just somebody giving us a funny look because we're not really cool we're not really with it by believing in god believing that he created the world that believing that he sent his son to die for us and that his son died arose from the dead and 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 people will make fun of that sort of thing or simply look at us funny and some of us have a hard time taking that and i wonder if if in the way we present ourselves is somehow what we've done is we have presented ourselves in such a way to prevent ourselves from ever experiencing that mockery. Because if we were bold about our faith, not obnoxious about it, not wrongly pushy, but bold and confident in our faith and willing to speak up, speak the truth of God into the situations we find ourselves in, What would happen? We need to be willing to face people's reactions so that through that process, we will be God's instruments to make a difference into those people's lives and other people's lives, just like Jesus has done. What will it take for us to stand boldly at this time? We need to ask God for his help, for his wisdom, that we could stand for him and the message of the gospel in our day at this time. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for what your Son was willing to do for your plans and purposes to rescue human beings from death and from eternal condemnation. Thank you, Lord, that those who know you have been released from condemnation. But more than that, we've been appointed to share this good news with others and to represent you in the world. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for being afraid, afraid of the mockery, afraid of the ramifications, afraid of the derision, afraid of a lot of things that may not even happen. Forgive us for our fear and make us brave. Make us courageous for you. Make us bold, Lord, in this day.
please. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, next week we'll be looking at Jesus' resurrection and find how the power of God enables us to live resurrected lives today. And so until then, this is Pastor Allen from All Saints Lutheran Church. God bless you and your loved ones. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca. Thank you.